Well, I remember being out in this yard with Van and uh, one or two of the other band members. John Sheldon was just a schoolboy in Boston in 1968 when Van Morrison, already a star, called to his house and asked him to be his guitarist. We were sitting on the grass right over there. Down Cypress Avenue. It was the summer. With the childlike vision sleeping into view. Van played about three or four songs without stopping. The click and clacking of the high heel shoes. The only one that I remember for sure was called Madame George. Ford and Fitzroy, Madam Joy. It was a moment of peace. In the time I played with Van, there wasn't a lot of peace. Marching with the soldier boy. Just months later, Van Morrison would record the album Astro Weeks. It was a commercial failure at the time, but today it's seen as one of the most important and most revered records ever made. Along with Madam George, there's Beside You, Sweet Thing, Cypress Avenue, The Way Young Lovers Do, Ballerina, Slim Slow Slider, and of course, the sublime title track. Van Morrison himself rarely speaks about Astral Weeks. He's always been uncomfortable when asked about it. Here he is in 1986. I was in a situation where I was up against the wall because I didn't have any money. And... You know, practically not eating at the time. Uh, critical acclaim is one thing, but I mean, you know, money's something else. But out of that really difficult time came some beautiful, beautiful music. The closest person to Van in 1968 was his then wife and muse, Janet, mother of his first child, Shanna. Janet treasures her memories of the summer of Astral Weeks. This is a picture of Van and Shanna and I very shortly after she was born. And this is a, a card that came with some flowers that he gave me. It says, thank you, I love you, Van. With your father arms and history books you Fifty years later, we're reuniting the people who helped make Astral Weeks. Van Morrison himself told us he wouldn't take part, though no one really knows why. This is where I answered the door. They already had We're standing in a hallway in the leafy Boston suburb of Cambridge. It's where the songs on Astral Weeks started taking shape. There's the double doors with the glass. I could see three slightly raggedy individuals out through the glass, and one of them being Van Morrison. This was about 50 years ago I opened the Actually, door. Dad, you helped me with my drums. God love you. Good well, come on in. Look at this. Hey, Joe. Good, man. All right, oh. John Sheldon is meeting Tom Kilbania and Joe Bebo okay. huh? from the band of student musicians Van cobbled together that spring. It's much, much cleaner. So, so you I spent every day here for like two months and right. you're in your basement. Right. Your mom used to bring down sandwiches. And uh, then we used to play uh, Frisbee out in the yard, right? Yeah, but you, let's go down and look at the rehearsal room, because yeah. I think we spent most of our time in there. Now, I mean, you might did. ask, why was someone like Van Morrison playing gigs with a bunch of students in suburban Boston? Sure, he was only 22. But just six months earlier, he'd had a huge hit with Brown Eyed Girl. And before that, with the Belfast band Them, he had success with songs like Gloria and Baby, Please Don't Go. Hey, where did we go? 
days when the rains came. The reason Van Morrison and Janet ended up in the breadline in Boston in early 68 was that Van had signed one of the worst ever recording contracts with a company linked to the mob called Bang Records. It was a very scary time because Bang Records was filled with underworld types. We were really in a terrible position. We had no money. Van had barely seen a penny from Brown Eyed Girl. And even worse, because the company hadn't looked after his work permit, he was about to be deported from the United States, the country he was determined to conquer. Bang hadn't done their job. They had never filed the paperwork. He was in violation. Still, Van wanted to continue on. He wanted to make his music, and so he was called into immigration immediately. They asked him if he would be prepared to uh, serve in the military if called, you know, if they allowed him to stay. And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> and that, I'm sure, did not endear him to them. And, you know, his manner, his manner came back to get him again. He represented himself, which was another terrible idea. And uh, he was deported. He was, there was like, they just said, bye, that's it. There was only one thing for it. Get married get married immediately, and so we did. We were madly in love with each other anyway, and I didn't want him to leave, he didn't want to leave. He was very determined that he wanted to make it in the United States. So uh, at the Lower Manhattan Courthouse uh, on January 8th, a judge married us. Julie, baby, it ain't natural for you to cry in the midnight. Things were getting heavy with the mobsters at Bang Records. The story was a guitar was smashed over Van's head and that he found a bullet hole in his hotel room door. So, shortly after the wedding, Van and Janet fled New York. And that's how Van Morrison ended up in the backyard of the Sheldon family home in Boston playing Madame George on his guitar. This is the rehearsal room. Ah, we played so loud in here, didn't it? I thought it was bigger. I thought we rehearsed in the bigger. It looks part. really small, yeah. doesn't it? We must have drove your parents crazy. Because we were playing loud, I know, man. the whole floor was vibrating. Were you with Tom when you were looking for a drummer and saw me walking up the street? We, I remember us driving somewhere near Berkeley College of Music and Tom saying, there's Joey. Joey, do you want to play? Do you want a gig? <laughs> Fifty years on, and the band are kids no more. The hair is grey and the shoes are more comfortable. They haven't seen each other since that summer of 68. On bass, Tom Kilbania. I was 20 years old studying music at Berkeley. On drums, Joe Beeble. Yep, I was 20 years old. I was finished my second year at Berkeley. And on electric guitar, John Sheldon. In the spring of 1968, I was a junior in high school who liked playing the guitar. Well, I tell you, we had this little room rocking. The first day I came in, I had no idea what the songs were, what we were doing, except for Domino. I remember us doing yeah. Domino. I loved that tune. Oh, Gloria. He brought out Gloria right, in the first right. rehearsal. Made sure I could play that song down, my goodness. We sort of had to play a bunch of those them songs, like Gloria. Van was depending on these students to help him get out of the hole he was in, 
But guess what? They didn't really know who Van Morrison was. And they certainly weren't fans of his big hit. Uh, I heard Brown Eyed Girl on the radio all that summer. It was teeny bopper music to me, so I was not impressed. The first time I heard it, I played it with him. <laughs> that was the first time I heard it, because I didn't listen to the radio. When I first heard it on a, a jukebox, I liked the bass solo, because it was really bassy, and the jukebox was going boom, boom, boom. Where it's really cool. While Van and the boys rehearsed Brown Eyed Girl, 20-year-old Janet, who inspired the song, was having her own struggles settling into Boston. The flat was so tiny, it was so ridiculously small, that there was no room for anything. There was a small kitchenette kind of thing with a kitchen table. And I think there was like two chairs. They were kind of yellowish, greenish, horrible walls. I mean, it was just awful. It was an awful place, but it was really inexpensive. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where we ended up. The band rehearsed every day and then gigged around the Boston area. But it was far from plain sailing. Psychedelic supermarket. Psychedelic yeah. supermarket. Yeah. You remember yeah. that blowing yeah. up? Was Nobody there no, day up. after day. Yeah, Van didn't want to go on. He's yelling at the top of his voice with F-bombs. <laughs> beautiful. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it was a thing of beauty. Yeah. Playing day in and day out allowed Van to develop the songs he was crafting at the kitchen table with his new wife, Janet. We had this tape machine. I, we'd had it since New York City, and we kind of developed this working style. Uh, we, you know, when we started in New York City, we we sort of started doing it this way because it was really streamlined and easy for Van to sit with his guitar and sing and play. And I could sit very close to him with the machine and I could record about 20 minutes at a time, really. Then we'd go back and we'd listen to it. Then he would decide he would say, I like that, I like that, I don't like that, that's stupid. And then I say, oh, well, I like this and I like this. And that's kind of what happened. Then I would rewrite those parts and then he would do the whole process again. It was hypnotic. The songs that we were working on all that time became Astro Weeks. It was really the experience of a lifetime. All, all the Astro Week tunes, it seemed like he was coming up with those here and there all summer. Tom Kilbinia, Van's bass player. The structures of the songs were pretty loose, so I used to have to watch his hands because I could tell he, he was going to go to another chord by the way he was holding his hand on his guitar. The musicians weren't just Van's band. As the summer wore on, they grew closer than that. I thought of him as a friend. We got along very good. We had some things in common. The biggest one being we were both only childs, and he thought it was a terrible thing to do to somebody that only had one kid. That you, you should have two, because there's a whole relationship thing. Van was down to earth. He was so quiet, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he didn't say much. 
I just remember that yeah. there wasn't much talk. It was pretty loose. Talk. It was pretty loose. It was fun. I, I was just having fun. Because I, I have to confess, I did not go to one rehearsal or one gig straight. You know, I was stoned and just playing and having fun. Um, that's probably why I don't remember the names of the tunes or anything. But there was a side to Van that made all relationships complicated. In understanding Van, you have to understand his mom and dad. Violet was a joyous extrovert. She was a force of nature. That's what I used to call her. She filled a room when she walked into it. She could sing incredibly. She sounded a little like Ella Fitzgerald, actually. She was incredible. She was this incredible performer, natural performer. Whereas Van's dad was painfully, painfully introverted agonizingly introverted. And Van really inherited both sides of these two very strongly. So on the one hand, he had this incredible talent. But on the other hand, he had this painful introversion. And it tore him apart. I mean, all his life, this, these, this dichotomy in him has torn him apart. Because on the one hand, he is a driven performer. He really is. He, he, it's all he does. And on the other hand, it's really agony for him. Yeah, well, he's usually hiding when it was time to go. We had to go and find him. Say, man, it's time to go. <laughs> he's hiding in a closet or something. Someplace. No, I'm serious. Uh, that happened quite a few times. Uh, I always felt like he, he often thought that there was something in the world that was out to get him, and it, and it worried him. So well, the, you got, hanging around. With yeah, him but you you got to remember, he, he had just got married, and he finds himself someplace where he probably thought he would never be because of what happened in New York, and now he's got to deal with all of this. There was one venue in Boston that changed everything that summer, the Catacombs. It's where Van first ditched electric instruments and went acoustic. It's where the band's final member joined the lineup. And it's where Van would be rescued from his New yeah, York troubles. I remember first going down those stairs. The first time I went down those stairs, anyway. Flute player John Payne is waiting in what remains today of the catacombs. We're about to reintroduce him to his former bandmates for the first time since the summer of Astral Weeks. Um, the stairs would have come down over there. Are there stairs over here? Lit by bare light bulbs, it's now an abandoned concrete shell with rat traps in the stairwells and a carpet of dust on the floor. And it wasn't this big, though. I don't think it was this big. Van's bass player, Tom, had invited John Payne to jam with the band at the Catacombs one night in August 68. John showed up. Van did want a flute player, although John couldn't tell from Van's grumpy manner. And even before I played a note, it felt very different on stage. Maybe the fact that he was letting me sit in with him meant, oh, so that's just, I, I got the wrong vibe there. He still was interested, even if he didn't sound like he was interested. And he started playing, and I just listened a while and figure out what's, you know, see what was going on. And then I started to play, and from the first notes I played, I could sense he was listening to everything I was playing. I'd never had that feeling about another musician before, that he was just was... He heard everything I played, and then he was reacting, that it was actually influencing the way he was singing the song. Now, that may or may not have been true, but he has such a varied way of, of doing rhythms and very as sophisticated as any jazz singer um, that I got that feeling anyway. And at the end of the first song, I went, wow, this, this, this is something. 
Then the next song was Brown Eyed Girl. And he starts playing it, and suddenly it took, took a few seconds. I'm getting chills just thinking about it for me to realize, wait a minute. He's not covering someone else's tune. This is, this is the guy. What's he doing in the sub-basement with 30 or 40 people hanging around playing acoustic guitar with a string bass player, you know? It's like, what? Hey, how you doing, John? It's been a long time. I last saw you in December of um, 1968. Yeah. I hope this bass is going to work. Okay. But I hope I can still play. John Sheldon? Yeah. yeah. John Payne. Hi, John. How you doing, man? When we suggested a reunion here in the catacombs, we were hoping the guys would consider playing together. Happily, they're up for it. This was a small, tiny room. People sat and sipped coffee. I remember a lot of black and some dayglow painting. When there was a tapestry hanging behind the stage, some, something on cloth. I, I can't get any sharper than this because it's a little cold in here. Was that an A, a G? That was a G, yeah. yeah. After weeks, it's just one, four, one, four, and then one. In a dusty, derelict basement on Boylston Street in Boston, the years are just falling away, and the band members are wearing wide smiles. Things were coming together musically for Van, but he was still tied into that terrible recording contract, despite his best efforts. I, I remember that he would call um, to get his and money. he'd be on the phone for a while, and, and when he put down the phone, it was the worst mood I ever saw him it in. It must have been a disaster. Because he did, th disaster. there was no money. money. He had a hit record. Yeah. And there was and, no and money. He a contract he couldn't get out of, and he couldn't. Be, I mean, he was in a terrible shape. One of the things that makes Astral Week stand out is its acoustic feel. So why did Van Morrison ditch drums and electric instruments in August 68? I remember him uh, saying that, that he had had a dream and he didn't want to play any more rock and roll. Guitarist John Sheldon. It's something in the dream uh, told him not to do it. But drummer Joe Bebo and bass player Tom Kilbenia have a simpler memory of how it happened. You couldn't use your amp. You went next door to get an up, a bass, and you came back with an upright. And we played soft that night. That's how I remember it. It just kind of happened. It just kind of happened. Among the tiny audience in the catacombs was a guy called Joe Smith. He was a big deal at Warner Brothers Records. You know, I had been um, informed about this guy... He was broke. He was living in Boston. And I had a call from the talent scout, and she told me about this guy who was tearing it up in Boston. And so I go to Boston, and I heard him sing. I turn on the radio! I still believe that's one of the greatest rock and roll vocalists I've ever heard. I knew I had to get him on the label. I found out what the story was. His contract was owned by a guy who had owed a lot of money to some strange guys, and uh, they decided to sell me his contract. The deal was we had to give the managers $20,000 to buy his contract. That's about 150 grand in today's money. And deliver it to them 
in the ninth floor of a warehouse at night when it's dark. So I, I took a taxi over there. I didn't think it was a good neighborhood for a limo. I get there, and there's a couple of guys downstairs at the door, and I'm walking up the stairs, certain that somebody's going to hit me in the head. But I gave it to the guy, $20,000 in cash, to sign Van Morrison to a contract. As the summer of 68 was drawing to a close, Joe Smith had finally released Van from his Bang Records contract. When we heard the news that Van was to sign with Warners, we were ecstatic, jumping up and down, hugging, crying. I mean, so excited, so thrilled that he was going to get another chance. That's all I prayed for is, please, please, dear God, let this man find his audience. That's all I was asking for all that time. Joe Smith, God love him, came to the rescue. Slim, slow, the deal with Warners meant new money and a new album, but it also meant Van giving away control to a jazz producer called Louis Merenstein. Slim, slow, and there was another catch. Merenstein insisted on using professional jazz players in New York. Despite Van's protests, none of the boys from Boston would be allowed on the record. They could sit in on the recording if they wanted, but they couldn't play. I was really disappointed. Tom Kilbinia was heartbroken. I, I know you're going to be upset, he says, he says, but they want to use their own musicians. And he really felt bad. They were fronting him the money to do this. They weren't gonna. They weren't. They didn't want to waste their money taking an extra day in the studio with people that aren't studio musicians. They wanted the. They, they wanted something that was just gonna happen right away. They had the whole thing planned out. John Payne was less bothered. I was much different situation than Tom. Tom had been with Van for a long period of time, helped develop the songs by playing them yeah. with him, and I. I just came in at the tail end of the thing. The summer was ending, and for the other two bandmates in Boston. John Sheldon and Joe Bebo, it was back to school. Three of us were sitting right around Van, yeah. and he said, I got the contract, I'm going to New York, you guys want to go? I wanted to finish my degree at Berkeley. Right. I don't know how I drifted off from yeah. the whole thing. You had to go back to school, didn't Well, you? I did have to go back to school, but I don't remember being asked to go to New York. Lou told Van, okay, well, this is what we're gonna do, and uh, your band can come if they want. You know, it's not like they're barred from the studio or anything, but, you know, he liked the guys and he liked what they were doing. As autumn arrived, John Payne and Tom Kilbania abandoned their studies and headed for New York to play with Van and his live band. But they weren't going to play on the album. Tom and I took the train down and we stayed at the Chelsea Hotel. Here in New York City, on the site of Century Sound Studio, where Astral Weeks was recorded, we've organized another reunion. Century Sound was run by the engineer Brooks Arthur, and uh, I remember going to the control room and seeing all those gold records on the, on the wall and going, whoa, serious. Some of the professional musicians who did play on the record are standing by, along with the sound engineer who recorded and mixed the album. Hey, hey John Payne. Yes. Brooks Arthur. That's sound engineer, do, Brooks Arthur. What do you do? <laughs> Not too bad, been a couple of years, huh? The original building on West 52nd Street is long gone. 
replaced by a gleaming 47-story skyscraper. The studio itself was about the size of the lobby. <laughs> it really was. There was a Chinese restaurant underneath it. Whenever he started to cook, the musicians started to get hungry for Chinese food. <laughs> the producer, Louis Merenstein, hired top New York jazz musicians for three sessions. Waiting upstairs today are percussionist Warren Smith. He'd already played with the likes of Nina Simone and Miles Davis. And guitarist Jay Berliner, who'd recorded with Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra. Hey, Warren, it's Brooks. Oh, how the hell are you? Good to see you, my friend. Man, I was wondering what you were going to look like after all these years. You, you, you look the same. You've gotten a little grayer. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I couldn't avoid that. The studio cats reign supreme then. Somehow I thought it was going to last. <laughs> well, we're here to discuss Van the Man. Let's see how fucked up my memory is. It's a reunion long overdue, and they're going to jam together on some of the actual instruments they played on Astral Weeks. This is the actual guitar used on the original record. Guitarist Jay Berliner. In 1968. This is it. Warren, Jay and John, who all played on the album in 68, are now revisiting the musical memory 50 years later, on the very spot where it was recorded. Well, I think we could try to do Astral Weeks, do something with a straight rhythm to it, too. Yeah. In September sixty eight. The songs Van had worked on with Janet and with the student band in Boston were finally being committed to tape. And Van was on edge. Of course he was nervous because, you know, he's a nervous performer and and this was this was important. This is what we'd worked for so hard for so long. And it had to work. He knew that it had to work, so so there was that. But for most of the musicians in the studio, this was just another day's work. I was a full-time studio musician, so I was running from date to date. And Jay Berliner. Playing all kinds of uh, jingles, records, movies, uh, soap operas. Right. But I'm getting my book out here so I can tell you exactly. <laughs> no, the original date was September 25th. Oh, I had played a commercial for Noxima CoverGirl Makeup. Before that, and and earlier than that, I did uh, a jingle for Pringles uh, pop chips. <laughs> that was at five in the afternoon, and then the first van date went from seven to eleven p.m. I was a busy cat. Sound engineer Brooks Arthur. Getting that shit all together, man. <laughs> I knew it was going to be experimental on some levels, but uh, I didn't know how monumental it was going to be. I'm in the control room, and I'm looking south. I'm looking downtown. We had. Connie Kay, and we had Richard Davis to his left, Richard Cassie Van. Drummer Connie Kay and bass player Richard Davis completed the lineup. Connie and, and Richard Cassie Van, and then Jay could have contact with Warren. Warren had in the right hand back of the studio, he had his whole little alcove where we'd put strings and horns, and we put the, uh, the vibes there to be ex expressive sonically. So, 
What did the New York pros make of this 23-year-old from Belfast? The first impression was how shy he was. He, he did very little talking. That's percussionist Warren Smith. He was almost like bashful in front of the musicians, except when he got ready to sing, you know. Then it was just natural. It was nice control over it. Whatever he wanted to do just seemed to come out very easily for him. Well, didn't really meet him. <laughs> I mean, he scooted into the studio and went into the isolation booth and didn't really see much of him after that. He, but, but he wasn't shy when he sang. He just remained unto himself in the vocal booth. That was his office. He set up shop, and he would be having conversations with himself and the guitar. <laughs> and uh, even though we were onto another tune, he was still yakking to, to and from the guitar with you know, coaxing it to play well for him or something like that. Normally, in a recording session like this, the music would be tightly arranged. But for Astral Weeks, it was a lot more casual. The producer allowed these guys to improvise, and they knew what they were doing. We had all this freedom, you know, we, we, we just started playing, and, and uh, it, it, just, it just happened. By allowing the players breathing room in terms of what they played once they got the changes and the basic arrangement down without a lot of verbal explanations, that might have been the best thing to do. I think they had a, some kind of appreciation for the creativity that we could spontaneously offer them. So if they had put too much supervision on us, it would have compressed all the energy that went in. The session players were relaxed and ready to go. I remember you doing it that day and just having my mind blown. And it still sounds as good 50 years later. That's amazing, man. 50 years went by so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Jade, Warren heard you noodling around. Uh, and then suddenly you, you guys like locked and even Van was starting to like pick up on where you guys were. I Usually I communicate with the producer of the, of the record date and letting them know when I roll tape. And in this case, I just felt some shit happening, some magic was happening. So I kept it, I hit, I hit the red light. We're on the air, you know. turns out that we that we made history but we didn't know we were making history we were just making a record you know but here we are 50 years later beside you was the gem just the gem little gem is gone away out on the back street out of the window to the falling rain Four Astral Weeks tracks were recorded that night. Cypress Avenue, then Madame George, then Beside You, and there was time for one more. Watching the session unfold was 20-year-old college dropout John Payne, just itching to get playing on the record. And I remember sitting in the control room, just almost screaming in my head, I want to be out there, I want to be out there. This is just so happening. I can't stand being in this control room. And that's when I started telling Lou Merenstein. But I didn't think it was going to do any good, but <laughs> and they were trying to figure out what next tune to do. And uh, they decided to do Astral Weeks. And Lou looked up and said, let's, let's have Payne play flute on this one. Mm -hmm. 
So um, I'm like, what? I didn't think it was going to work. <laughs> and then they recorded Astral Weeks, which I'm almost sure is one take. Because I'd never play with musicians of your caliber. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dreams Because you guys were all listening to each other. Where my world still runs crack And the dead in the back road I'd never felt that before. It was just this most incredible rush. Could you find me? For everyone in the Century Sound Studio, something special was happening. It was, it was pure intuition, it was luck, it was ex a little experience, even though I was a young cat. It was spontaneous, and, and we kept going, you know, like we played off that, and of course we listened to each other, which is so amazing. Do you guys mind if I vamp a little bit on something? Sound engineer Brooks Arthur. I was noticing as I was listening to Ballerina again that uh, Van's guitar was slightly out of tune. And I'm glad we never stopped to tune up because the slight, and I mean very slight out of tuneness, reflected the emotion of the work we had put into the making of the album. Spread your wings. Come on, fly wild. 47 minutes and 10 seconds. Eight extraordinary songs. After that first night, just two more sessions were needed to record The Way Young Lovers Do, Sweet Thing, Ballerina, and Slim Slow Slider. The album was released in late 1968. There was no launch party, there were no singles, and for those expecting something like Brown Eyed Girl, there was disappointment. Well, it's hard to say now whether I had favorites of the songs that would appear on the Astral Weeks album. We worked so carefully and so, so almost lovingly on each one of them. They were all so precious to me. And I still get tears in my eyes when I hear our daughter Shanna singing Sweet Thing. Because she does such a beautiful job of that song. And it's such a great song. I love it too. And step Van Morrison would later claim that the producer had ruined his album by adding strings and horns afterwards, against his wishes. After Astral Weeks, Van would never again hand over full control of his music to a producer. Two years later, Van hit the big time with Moondance, and for a long time, Astral Weeks remained his least popular album. Out of the blue, in the 1990s, Astral Weeks started cropping up in the lists of the best albums of all time. Rolling Stone, Time Magazine, The Times of London. Sales began to build. Amazingly, it wasn't until 2001 that the album finally went gold, having sold half a million copies. For most of those involved with the album, this belated success was a big surprise. A number of years later, I'm, I'm on a date, a keyboard player comes in and I introduce myself, hi, nice to meet you, I'm Jay Berliner. He said, you're Jay Berliner? I said, yeah, I'm, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he starts genuflecting. He said, you played on Astral Weeks. I don't know what he was talking about. 
So I better go out and buy a copy of this and find out. I remember the date because it was so unusual to play like that, but I had no idea what became of it. It took me a long time to get around to listening to it. Percussionist Warren Smith. You know, and then I was pleasantly surprised. I think what happened was uh, it kind of snuck up on people. Brooks Arthur. It's, it's, it's been like a slow, a slow build. It's too bad that Van isn't uh, able to contribute to all this, you know, this 50th anniversary thing and all that. Flute player John Payne. I mean, he was obviously a fairly central figure in the album. <laughs> it's too bad. The boys from the Boston band, John, Joe and Tom, had different reactions to the album when they first heard it. I went to New York to visit Van when the album was just about finished, and he played it for me. And um, my reaction was, um, I can't really tell this guy what I think, because <laughs> I don't get this at all. I mean, it's just so rambling and loose. A few years later, I visited a friend of mine in San Francisco, and we smoked some pot and, he, and lay back in his listening room and he put on Astral Weeks and he said, you got to listen to this album. And I said, I know that album. And we listened to it together. And Stoned, it, 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 was, it was a good album. I was, man, okay. Nice job, Van and the guys. I thought it was spectacular because I was, I, I was into that type of music. It just blew my mind. Of course, I saw the whole thing being produced and I listened to it and I, I thought it was way way ahead of its time. So I wasn't too thrilled about the album and I listened to it once and I said we, we played better than no we had some edge we played with an edge we sounded good. A few years ago I heard it again and Van blew me away his voice blew me away you know and I said this guy can fucking sing man he is amazing. Although one or two of the musicians in this story have crossed paths with Van Morrison over the years they haven't really kept in touch. Joe Smith, the man who signed Van up for Astral Weeks, says that despite his tricky personality, Van made a record for him that still endures. I just knew this was a difficult guy. Uh, in the record business, you always see the difficult. We had Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. These were no walks in the park either, you know. But uh, Van was different. He was combative, on the edge all the time. But behind it all was this brilliant musician. When he starts singing, uh, it just changed everything. The reunions are over. For now. Jay? Okay. Stay Pleasure. healthy. To all of us okay. boys, Morris. Yeah, man, one of the old world. Let's, let's, just, meet, let's just meet here again in another 50 years, okay? okay? Janet and Van went their separate ways in 1973 and both remarried. Their daughter, Shanna, is now an accomplished singer-songwriter. Janet still cherishes her memories of the man who made this unique piece of art. When I look at these photos of Van back then, he, he, he just radiated this beauty. In person, it was there too. He was just a beautiful man. He really was absolutely a gorgeous man. I just... I just, uh, I loved him to death. After 50 years, not all the memories line up. In another time. 
time passes and the world moves on. And another place. The cities have changed, the buildings have changed, the people have changed. All that really remains the same from that summer is the music. And another fame. 